Similar with research. Um, that last mile, if, if you don't have a plan to, at the start before you commission your research about how you are going tr to traverse that last mile, about how you are going to take the insights that will come out of the research project that you've either conducted or commissioned uh, and put that into tangible action, then you should not commission that piece of research in the first place. Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of communication in government and the public sector. My name is David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today, we talk data and welcome Adam Rowland, an expert in public sector research who's currently working for the Australian Government's Department of Health. Prior to that, Adam spent 15 years in the private sector working in evidence-based consulting for the likes of global giants Kantar Public and Ipsos, as well as spending time running his own consultancy, Better Intelligence. Adam is renowned for his understanding of design, implementation and evaluation of government communication and information programs, working most recently on the 2021 National Census here in Australia. In the public sector, Adam has led the National Centre for Longitudinal Data and held roles in organisational transformation, change management and using administrative and survey data to make evidence-based decisions. He's also a very funny man and he joins me now. Adam, thanks very much for joining GovComs. Great to be with you. Thank you for such a generous introduction. So listen, it's interesting, isn't it, as we reflect on research and data in that it's so topical, so common, but really, um, as your career would attest, you've been looking at data and research for a very, very long time. When was the time or the flipping point as you saw it or the tipping point as you saw it that it started to become something that everyone talked about? I think this has been a, a just a steady evolution um, since my involvement in conducting research for government since around about 2000 when I returned from the UK to Australia and joined the research industry here in Australia. Um, you know, evidence-informed decision-making and evidence-based policy-making um, was certainly uh, spoken about quite a lot then. Um, and I think we've just seen an ever-increasing trajectory. Um, Malcolm Turnbull, uh, when he took over the Prime Ministership, um, introduced the Open Data Agenda. Um, and uh, to, to paraphrase him, uh, there was never a better time to be alive and to, to be involved in data. Um, and frankly, I think that that trajectory has continued. Um, and we've seen you know, some fantastic initiatives across the Australian public sector, which I have more visibility of, but also um, state and territory public sectors with things like behavioural economics teams, um, data analytics centres, um, longitudinal data becoming more preva prevalent, um, integrated data sets um, being, being much more prevalent. Um, and again, you know, the, the, the Commonwealth has really led the way there when we look at something like the multi-agency data integration project um, run by the ABS that has data assets that include personal income tax data, Medicare benefit schedule data, pharmaceutical benefit schedule data, census data, um, you know, a whole range of data sets that, that are you know, really starting to be used um, 
uh, even more and more. Um, so, so I think you know it's just a, a continual evolution, and I and I'm I'm pleased to say that I expect that to continue into the future. Mm. So, if you're trying to explain exactly what it is you do to your grandmother, how do you how do you do that? I don't. I give up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, look, I, I, I try and help people make sensible decisions. Um, and sometimes uh, that means stopping doing things. Sometimes it means not starting doing things. Sometimes it means changing what we do. And sometimes it might mean starting something that's completely different. Um, but really, um, you know, what I try and do in that space is, you know, balance, balance pragmatism, uh, what can feasibly and realistically be done um, for a, a reasonable investment of time, um, but always, you know, trying to look at, well, what is the evidence for what we're doing? What is the justification for what we're doing? You know, what, what are the desired outcomes and how do we map out quite clearly how we get from A to B or possibly C and D? Um, how, how do we identify and manage risks appropriately as we're trying to move through that? Um, and then once we do that, just a relentless focus on delivery, um, ensuring that um, the, the perfect doesn't become the enemy of the good and that at the end of the day we achieve some sensible things. So could you describe for me perhaps a, a typical process that, that you might undertake in terms of assembling a, uh, a research program? Um, does it always start with the problem? Or does it start with a hypothesis? How, how does it generally come about? You generally want to have a pretty good idea of, of the fact that a problem exists and that you're trying to solve something. Um, now, you don't necessarily always have to do that. You, you know, you could, for example, and we see this with hackathons um, that happen um, in different jurisdictions, you know, you know, that is essentially just looking at um, you know, we have these resources available to us, be they data sets or specific types of technology or smart people or hopefully a combination of all, all of those things um, and uh, an authorising environment. That means that we are encouraged to uh, and supported to pursue sensible things. Um, and, you know, th then those hackathons essentially start with, well, what problem can we try and solve? Um, so you can absolutely um, start from that perspective, but realistically, sitting within a, a business area, within a, a public sector department or somewhere else, you will have a problem that you are trying to solve. Um, and so really step one is, you know, what do, get, getting a, a bunch of stakeholders in a room and trying to understand what do we know about the problem? How can we identify the problem? What might be related to this problem? What data and evidence do we have um, that can speak to various aspects of this issue or this problem that we're trying to solve? And how how might we go about trying to solve it? Um, and that could, depending on what the problem is, um, take a, a whole bunch of different formats. You know, it could be some internal work that's done. Uh, it could be uh, looking to the external market to see how academics or the, the private sector potentially could assist, um, or a combination of those things. But you know, for me, really, just trying to get crystal clear. Um, on what is the problem um, that you're trying to solve. You know, I think it was uh, Einstein who said uh, that he could solve any problem within an hour and in doing that he would spend the first 55 minutes trying to define the question and, and only five minutes answering it. And I think there's, um, there's something in that. So in terms then of the, the maturing or the, and, and the development of the, the research capabil capability and the impact of digital technology, which is generating so much additional uh, data, 
and hopefully insight once that data is is better understood. What are the challenges for people such as yourself um, as you're going about not only just defining those problems, but then wrangling the insight um, from the data? Yeah, I think you know, a, a constant battle is just trying to get the right people involved in sensible ways to try and tackle whatever issue or challenge it is that you're trying to tackle. Um, there's obviously in the research space and evaluation space, there's been uh, a prevalence, an increasing prevalence of self-service tools. Um, so you think about you know, SurveyMonkey or Qualtrics or, or other platforms um, that enable any layperson really to be able to um, uh, script up a, a survey you know, in a very easy point and click kind of way, uh, an online survey, and then send it out you know, to an email list of their stakeholders and, and get responses back. Um, that is helpful in some sense, uh, but unhelpful in others, because what it assumes is that the person who's doing that knows how to design a sensible questionnaire. Um, and you know, as someone who's worked for you know, more than 15 out of my 20 years or so in market and social research, um, it is a genuine skill um, in, in being able to write a questionnaire that is going to be both reliable and valid and give you what you think you're getting out of, of any particular survey. Um, so, you know, that, that can give people a bit of a false sense of security, um, that they think they have the tools and think, you know, how hard is it to write a question? I ask questions every day. You're asking me questions right now, David. <laughs> um, but, you know, that is not necessarily going to give you the outcome you think you're going to get, and it may not get you a good outcome, and it may, in fact, um, send you in the wrong direction. You might not even be aware that you're going to head off in the wrong direction because you've worded questions in a particular way, you've introduced biases, um, you know, there may be other issues with, with what you're doing. Um, so, so while there is a, an increasing prevalence of some of those tools, and I, I gave you an example of just one, um, that is both a, a bit of a blessing and a curse. So in, then in terms of your advice to people around asking questions or de designing um, surveys, uh, clearly, advice number one would be to go and find somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, but after that, if you can't find somebody, what's the best way to go about asking questions so as that you do get the, the valid and, and right and reliable answer that you're looking for? I'd suggest if you have attempted to find someone and haven't, then you probably haven't looked hard enough. Um, there, there, there is a, an organisation in Australia, used to be called the Australian Market and Social Research Society. It, it rebranded recently to the Research Society. Um, there are hundreds of organisations and thousands of individuals um, in Australia who are members of that organisation um, who by being members of that organisation, um, you can be, you can have a level of assurance that they have uh, certain types of skills and experience. Um, on top of that, they run a um, accreditation program uh, called Qualified Professional Researcher or QPR accreditation. Um, and uh, someone who has QPR accreditation, you, you have a very high degree of confidence that they have uh, the types of skills and experience that you are looking for. Um, there are, of course, um, a number of uh, panels, procurement panels that exist uh, within uh, most public sector organisations, uh, but also whole of government panels um, that contain a number of these market and social research companies who are members of the research society. So um, if you're looking for someone and feel like you haven't been able to find them, go and chat to your procurement area. Um, literally just Google the Research Society um, and, and check them out. 
Um, and uh, if you still can't find someone, then uh, maybe, maybe there's a, a greater issue at play here than, uh, th- than designing a survey. <laughs> so then we do research to give us insights to help us to make decisions so as that we can take some form of action or create some sort of intervention, which is hopefully going to solve a problem, cure an ill of, of some sort. How do you see that link between research and action and, and how do you best move from the insight that you get from research into effective action, such as effective communication? Yeah, I mean, that's that's really critical. I, I'd sort of term that the last mile. Um, uh, so if you think about you know the broadband network, for example, it doesn't matter how good your, your fibre backbone is, doesn't matter how good your fibre to the node is or your fibre to the curb, if that last mile is a degrading piece of copper um, that was, was put in the ground decades ago, um, then it doesn't really matter and you may as well have stopped building your backbone in the first place. Um, similar with research. Um, that last mile, if, if you don't have a plan to, at the start before you commission your research about how you are going tr- to traverse that last mile, about how you are going to take the insights that will come out of the research project that you've either conducted or commissioned uh, and put that into tangible action, then you should not commission that piece of research in the first place. Um, what, what does that look like and how can you set that up for success? Um, ensuring that appropriate stakeholders are engaged and involved uh, in a research project from the very get-go and throughout uh, and uh, at the end is critical. Um, researchers will uh, follow the brief that they're given um, and they will uh, you know, get creative where they need to be to fill in blanks where they exist. Um, but often it's helpful you know, for the subject matter experts within the business areas to be involved in filling in those blanks um, and, and actively pointing out where some of those blanks might be so that it's not just uh, left to, to, to the, the sheer luck of the, the researcher as to whether they um, happen to stumble on, a, on some of those blanks or not. Um, so ha- bringing in you know, diverse stakeholders to help um, uh, both conceive of a project uh, to have input into writing the brief and signing off on the research brief that, that then the researchers will respond to. Uh, it can be quite helpful to have a light touch governance committee um, that sits over the top of a research project. Um, and I say light touch deliberately, you know, you don't want to govern it to within an inch of its life. And, you know, with any project management, any minute that you spend managing the project and reporting on how the project is going is a minute that you're not spending delivering the project. Um, but having a couple of critical touch points at the front, in the middle and right at the end uh, can be very helpful. Um, but then you know, working out, you know, is, is there an opportunity for one or more workshops um, with some of the, the stakeholders and end users of the research? How, if at all, can we bring in um, some of the external stakeholders who might sit outside the department, who might sit in industry, or they, you know, they might be individuals and, and um, uh, you know, punters who the particular program or service um, or piece of communications is meant to target. You know, be risky. Get them involved in some workshops. Um, uh, you know, get them to uh, internalise what they think the findings mean uh, and how it can be implemented. Um, but again, you, know, you know, need to think about that up front. That does take time and effort and energy. Um, and you know, some people might argue, well, I don't have the luxury of that. I would argue that you don't have the luxury not to do that. Um, as I say, if, if, if you're not doing that and you're not doing, doing that whole process end-to-end, eyes wide open to what that last mile looks like, then stop and go and do something else, frankly. 
So in terms then of how often um, research should be commissioned, where's the threshold point for you um, where you do need to engage professionals to to give you the insights? Is it a is it a dollar figure around a, a, a program amount or is it a, a scale issue in terms of the numbers of stakeholders that you need to be understand? Is there a is there a place where a decision point can be easily identified as to whether you do go for research or, or don't go for research? Yeah, I think there is. And um, the procurement areas, but also some of the larger departments have market research teams. So the Department of Health, for example, um, has a, a very um, sophisticated market research unit based up in Sydney. Um, and you know they can provide expert guidance, as can any other um, equivalent area within an organisation that, that listeners might be, be working in. It comes down to a couple of factors, though. One is, you know, essentially, what's the risk? Um, what's the risk of getting this wrong? What's the risk of um, not communicating in a way that's going to be effective? An obvious dimension to that is money. Um, you know, what's the cost investment of a particular program? What's the cost investment of a particular communications activity? What is the potential downside risk of, of cost to the Commonwealth or even reputational risk uh, if something goes wrong? Um, so, so some of those things can um, really help to identify if research and, and commissioned research is required. Um, obviously, there are other constraints such as, you know, what's the time frame we've got to work with? Um, you know, what is the available budget um, that, that's been carved out? Or, or is there an opportunity to, you know, go and get some additional um, budget that might not have been foreseen uh, when the, the program was designed and costed, but might be available in a... Um, you know, an, an executive um, kind of fund that might be accessible for um, certain purposes and contingencies. Um, so there's a, a, a range of factors. You know, in essence, it will come down to judgment. Um, and so working with others who are experts at trying to um, you know, identify some of those parameters and their potential uh, risks and issues um, can help um, sort of form those wise um, judgment-based decisions. Now, this is the GovComs podcast, so directed to government professionals, and you do have quite a bit of experience in that um, the design, the implementation and evaluation of, of government communication and information campaigns. What's your, as you reflect on on best practice, you know, through those three phases, what are some of the things that communications professionals really need to keep um, front of mind so as that they are contributing to uh, effective research? Yeah, I, th I think there's a few things. One is you know, really being crystal clear on the objective. So what are we trying to achieve here? What is the scope of what we're trying to achieve? And what is outside that scope? Um, so really understanding you know, from the programmatic perspective, you know, what, what is the program trying to achieve? What's its scope? what is communication's role within that scope and that context, and what is the research role to support that communications, to support the program or, or, or the service. Um, so really trying to you know, pinpoint um, that, and, and it helps to, to you know, have a one-pager um, that, that can guide the project um, that you're working. It can be a living document that gets updated, but at the top of that, you know, have a sentence um, that is you know, just really crystal clear for anyone who reads it um, is, is really obvious about what it is we're trying to do and why. 
Um, so that that's that's one thing. Another would be um, to really look for opportunities to engage um, with others and and to collaborate. Um, you know, we are all better when we collaborate with others. We are all greater. Um, we all become greater than the sum of our individual parts um, when when we partner with others, both within our organisations but also externally. Um, so. Looking for opportunities as well um, in that vein, but not trying to reinvent the wheel. Um, you know, you might be working in the Department of Health, working on a on a, a piece of communications. Uh, it might be trying to target a specific group, so it might be trying to target pregnant mothers, for example. There might be areas within the Department of Employment um, who've had communications pro projects um, that are meant to target um, pregnant mothers. Um, there might be specifically communications from the tax office um, or from Services Australia that are trying to target pregnant mothers, you know, e either um, in and around return to work or or taking time off work or whatever. Um, so thinking not just about the communications challenge and the program challenge that you're trying to solve, but thinking about the audience that you're trying to speak to. Uh, and, and what are some of the um, slightly more tangential ways that you can try and get some insights into that audience as well by reaching out to others um, that you know might on the face of it be um, not that obvious that you'd want to go and chat to someone in the tax office if you're trying to develop a, a, a comms campaign for a health program. But if you start really thinking about you know, what are we trying to do? We're trying to change behaviour of a particular group. It happens to be pregnant mothers. Other people have solved this problem. What can we learn from what they've done? You know, formative research um, that is done that, that informs both programs but also communications campaigns, you know, that is going to apply often, largely, um, to other pieces of, of work um, that target the same audience. So, you know, really trying to leverage off other work that the Commonwealth's done. What do you see as technology continues to gather pace in terms of its uh, evolution, you know, greater speeds, greater capabilities, greater ability to be able to um, process large amounts of data, be, be it through uh, machine learning? What sorts of impacts are you seeing that that type of technology is having on on the research industry and on the ability of uh, policymakers to make better decisions as a result of having more access to um, to better information, perhaps faster? Well, the impacts are profound. They've been profound for some time and they will increase in profundity. Um, the, you know, we, we no longer have an issue of we don't have enough data. That has not been an issue for some time. When you think about all of the... Um, data collections that are held and are integrated variously around the country, you know, very rarely is our, our issue a lack of data, notwithstanding the fact that we might want to go and survey people on a particular issue from time to time. Um, so, so, so that being said, you know, the advent of artificial intelligence and machine learning, um, you know, the data scientist um, is is almost becoming the new heart of an organisation or, or, or should or, or potentially could be the new heart of an organisation. Um, so using some of those quite advanced tools um, and advancing tools all the time, um, we can uncover insights that we could only dream about potentially uncovering um, even 10 years ago. Um, so really, you know, that, that is a bit of a mindset shift about the types of uh, resources and skill sets that one might um, uh, 
turn towards trying to solve particular problems. Um, but often that can really you know, be, be very helpful in policy formulation, you know, issues identification, policy evaluation, program design, program delivery and, and program tweaking and, and service delivery and, and customer satisfaction. You know, there's a whole, if we t just take one field of um, customer satisfaction, for example, um, many years ago, I used to work on a number of customer satisfaction trackers, um, one of which was for the tax office. So every quarter, we'd interview 1,500 small business owners um, about their sentiment and perceptions of the tax office and their interactions with it and you know, where they were doing well and where there were opportunities to improve, etc. What you can do now with sentiment analysis on the internet is you can basically just scrape that. You, you, you can absolutely still track it over time, but you can also track it in real time. Um, so you can see you know, if there is a particular news article or, or something happens or there's a, you, know, you, you make changes to a particular form around BAS time for small businesses, the business activity statement, um, you can then actually track in real time how, if at all, sentiment is being impacted by some of those changes. That then allows you to react quite quickly as well. Um, so setting up the tools and the mechanisms to be able to do that and having an eye to that last mile, you know, it's it's one thing to set up tools to be able to track that, but if we see something, what will we do? Who will potentially do it? Do we have those resources available? Are they potentially free to be able to kind of pivot quite quickly um, is critical. And all of that, you know, you have to think holistically at the organisational level about how you're going to embed that um, within the organisation, but there are so many opportunities um, that those sorts of tools and techniques can open up. But aren't there also at the same time sort of risks as we sort of head towards this greater sense of personalization that because there are so many layers of data that we can get lost in trying to segment to the audience of one as opposed to trying to gather up, you know, groupings as such. And so therefore, you know, you never know what sort of rabbit hole you might end up in as you seek for the data to give you some absolute perfect clarity about what an individual may or may not um, do in terms of their behaviour. Yes and no. I mean, the, the ultimate segmentation is down to the granular level of the individual. I mean, in an ideal world, and you, know, you see this more and more, you know, if you think about your experience watching Netflix, um, or purchasing something on Amazon or eBay, um, would you be interested in X, Y, or Z based on your previous viewing um, habits or your previous purchasing habits? Um, you know, that is essentially segmentation down to the individual. Um, you know, you, if you go and buy a, a, a particular piece of uh, a particular brand of dog food, for example, on Amazon, uh, and I go and buy a particular brand, of, the same brand of dog food on Amazon, we will get different recommendations because of um, what. Google and Amazon uh, know about us and, and what we've looked at and what we've bought before. Um, so is there an opportunity to move towards that for government? Absolutely. Um, will we uh, you know, quickly get to that level of granularity? Um, unlikely, but you know, how, do, how does government use the tools that are available to it right now um, and they include, um, you know, really rich administrative data. If you think about Services Australia, for example, so people who might be in receipt of income support payments, you know, there is so much information known about individuals about 
when they made contact with, you know, through what channel, have they used chatbots, do they always call up, do they only ever go in in person, you know, do, it, when you send them a letter, do they actually respond or do they respond better to text messages? Um, you know, there's a whole range of um, data that are available to those sorts of organisations, which they are using, I, I might add. Um, but, you know, how, how can we more broadly um, think about how to apply those sorts of tools and techniques um, in the work um, that we, we all do that might not necessarily be, be um, coalface service delivery, um, but might be, you know, program delivery. You know, there might be grant programs, for example, that have been going on for decades that have a reasonably consistent um, uh, cadre of, of grant recipients. You know, what do we know about them? What what, what do we know about their financial situations, their, the, the extent to which they um, provide performance reports on time, the level of detail in the performance reports? You know, all, all of that can um, lead to appropriate risk profiling uh, and then um, you know, differential approaches to uh, different grant recipients in that example. And, and the tax office, um, by way of example, has been doing that with both business and um, personal taxpayers for many, many years. So in terms then, and this sort of leads us into the area of, of privacy, you know, people may be more accepting that Netflix can serve them up a recommendation or a coupon can be delivered if they're in a particular shopping centre after a sensor have picked them up there. But is there a different standard for government in terms of what it can know and act upon uh, in terms of relations with citizens? Absolutely. Um, and this comes down to a, a really important concept called social licence. Um, so, you know, government and, and public sector departments and agencies, you know, have at their disposal uh, particular approaches that are permitted by law. Just because something is permitted by law does not make it a good idea um, and does not mean it should be done. Uh, and, you know, the government and the public sector um, has a responsibility to understand what is its social licence. Um, you know, th this is a concept that, that came out, um, you know, if you think about mining companies, you know, we talk about them having a social licence to operate within the communities in which they operate. Um, there's a similar um, sort of concept here for, for government and the public sector more broadly. Um, you know, what, what social licence do we have um, to use um, some of these publicly available data that potentially, you know, if if government and the public sector chose to, could literally scrape off Facebook or fa scrape off Google or Instagram or, or other platforms. I'd argue that the social licence there is probably very low. Um, but you know, it would be helpful to get some evidence around that um, and potentially conduct some research and understand what that social licence looks like. Um, similarly, you know, what is the social licence in the example I gave earlier for using... Um, uh, uh, data based on people's behaviours for income support recipients to then tailor you know, the way that they're communicated to, for example. Um, that is probably got a bit higher social licence, I would argue. Um, but again, you know, you'd want to go and test that with the groups of interest and see what you can and can't and should and should not do. Um, but it's a, it's a really fundamental an important concept, that social licence. And, you know, we should not just think about it in terms of um, punters, the general public. We should think about it in terms of the business community uh, and really act on um, that, that concept. But in terms of that, though, how then does that 
notion of social license mature? Like, take me sort of five years into the future. Where might it be for government? Is it that every time you're going out to explore insights around a particular group that you are going to have to assess the level of social social license or will will the world have matured sufficiently that people are quite happy that um, you know publicly available data can be used by whoever uh, so so again bringing on a, a theme I've mentioned about you know what's the last mile there of once you understand social license so what um, you know I, I could understand that you know there's a reasonable degree of social license to you know use people's um, uh, tax payment data to communicate to them in particular ways. Um, so, so, so let's say you know we do that study and we find out there's a, a, a moderate level of social license. Well, now what? What are we going to do to foster and enhance that social license? You know, mm-hmm. What activities can we do to increase the level of trust um, uh, in the tax office in this example uh, of the general public or of businesses? You know, and how are we going to track and measure that over time? Um, you know, we need to think about um, this as a as a resource um, and as an asset that that the government and the Commonwealth has at, at its disposal. Um, it is something that needs to be invested in. Uh, it is something that uh, uh, takes a lot of time and energy to bolster and increase, and it is something that can be lost easily. Um, you, you know, just with you know corporate reputation, for example, you know reputations of large companies. They do large companies do corporate reputation trackers, which is effectively the equivalent of social license for government and private sector. This is something they invest heavily in. They see it as an asset. They value it as an asset, um, and uh, they you know, treat it accordingly. Um, and they know what they can and can't do um, in relation to their reputation. Um, and you know, I would argue that there's a real opportunity for us within. You know, government and the private sector to, to take a similar approach. But it's something, it's not a set and forget. It's not something you measure once and forget about. Um, it's something you invest in, you keep measuring it, you measure the impact of it. And then you know, as, it, as it increases over time, that it opens up doors and allows you to do things that you couldn't previously do. Mm. It's mindset as much as anything else, isn't it? There's obviously the skills that are required once you've you've done it, but you really, as you say, it's not set and forget. It's something that you really do need to continue to work on in terms of building that trust um, with citizens and stakeholders so as that they they you earn the confidence, I suppose, over time that they will share um, more information um, to enable you to make better public policy decisions. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, what's in it for me? You know, that, that's essentially the answer that we're, we, we should be trying to answer here. Um, uh, you know, w- what's in it for me as a citizen... Um, you know, it is a more frictionless uh, and seamless interaction with government services and programs. Um, it is not having to retell my story to either the same agency, God forbid, or multiple agencies when I you know, get pregnant or uh, when my, my partner passes away or, or when some of these things happen. You, know, you look at New South Wales, a pretty good example at the moment with um, you know, Victor Dominello um, really driving forward some of their um, digital transformation activities where they've got online driver, you know, online driver's licenses that you can get on your phones. So you don't have to carry around a driver's license. Um, you know, automating or just abolishing forms. Um, you know, that's some of the what's in it for me for for the citizen. Um, and you know, that needs to be coupled with 
the appropriate management of privacy risk um, and other risks that the citizen should be interested in. Um, but really, you know, trying to tell that story, what's the narrative? What's government trying to do here? How is government trying to make my life as a punter easier? Um, and, you know, once I can start seeing that as a, as a citizen, then, you know, my willingness to allow the government to, to do different things increases, and that, that effectively is just code for social licence. Hmm. Uh, a final question before we go. Um, it's such a fascinating area um, of... Um, government communication practice really, isn't it, is to, is to how do you um, assemble the data to help you to make better decisions about the story, types of stories that you're going to tell, the channels that you're going to use, the types of content that you're going to create, the times you're going to publish that particular content, how you're going to evaluate whether or not the message got through. What what do you see as sort of the, the, the next or first opportunities, you know, to mature um, and continue to grow at that as a sort of core capability as part of the communication and engagement function? What what are some of the steps that could be taken immediately to improve um, the capabilities of communication and engagement teams so as that they are getting the benefits of, um, of, of the uh, technologies that you've outlined today? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things there. In essence, it's going to come down to having greater visibility of what's available uh, and availing yourself of uh, appropriate resources to be able to help with that. Um, now, that could take many guises. Um, for example, you could look to uh, bring people into your communications team who are very data savvy, for example. Um, you know, they may not be able to assist on all comms projects or all activities that the communication section does, but you know, they will be able to add immeasurable value on particular things that the, that, that, that group is, is trying to do. Um, and, you know, one of the things I was sort of musing about the other day with my wife is um, you can't commission what you, what you don't understand enough to be able to describe and then manage. So... You know, in in government, we often have to look outside ourselves in the public service to to you know contractors or consultants or academics or whatever. It's almost impossible uh, for me sitting in the public service to commission a consultant to do something that I can't fully conceive of myself. Um, and you know th that's true of uh, communications areas. You know, if, if you don't have genuine people with data chops who are sitting in your comms area you're not going to be able to conceive you know, of some of the, the fantastic and, and maybe interesting and maybe bold and, and maybe a little out there kind of ways in which data could genuinely help um, the particular activity that you're trying to do. Um, so you know, seeking to, to get better visibility of what's possible, and that really is only um, feasible once you have those genuine experts who have visibility of what you're doing. Um, so bringing them in the tent, um, getting, giving them that visibility, and that could be embedding people within your team. It could be bringing people in on secondment from outside your organisation and potentially outside your sector. Um, you know, you could imagine uh, bringing in a, a data scientist from an academic institution or a data scientist uh, who might work in a, in a comms agency or a data scientist who, who works in a market and social research company who specialises in um, comms research. You know, have a three-month secondment, bring them in. Um, it'll open their eyes to, to what you're doing and how you're doing it, but 
um, that they'll just by being there and kind of absorbing what you're doing, they'll come up with some ideas, some of which won't be great, some of which will be absolutely fantastic um, and should be pursued. Um, so, so really, you know, trying to trying to get those blended teams, trying to bring in that expertise, um, giving that visibility um, so that you can get that benefit, I think is really important. Fantastic advice. Adam Rowland, fantastic advice. I think that sort of cross-functional blended role, it is the future. I don't think there's any doubt in the world that we are going to have to change the way we think about the communication and engagement function and the people who are going to be sitting within those teams over time because um, it's going to be so necessary to really understand the um, you know, the waves and the oceans of data that is out there that can help us to do our job more effectively. But thank you so much for giving up a bit of your time this afternoon. Uh, very grateful for that. Uh, so thank you very much for, for joining me on GovComps. My pleasure. Thank you. And to you, the audience, thank you once again for coming back to listen to GovComs, where we speak to experts like Adam Rowland. And great insights there um, today from Adam. Not only that last one about bringing other people in, but really, you know, that last mile, the insight, making sure that you know and understand not only the problem, but then how are you going to solve that problem and how are you going to use the insights to help you to, you know, ultimately deliver the value for the citizens. But it's exciting times, I think, for for people with market research uh, and data backgrounds. And we really do need to integrate them much closer into our communications and engagements team so we can deliver better outcomes for citizens and stakeholders. But yes, thanks for coming back once again. We'll be back at the same time in two weeks. If you do see the social media promotion for the GovComs podcast, please pass it along. Uh, If you do have time for a rating or a review on your favourite podcast catcher, that would also be appreciated. But thanks again for coming back. We'll be back at the same time in two weeks. But for the moment, it's bye for now.